Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Before we even begin, we need to define what a concert ticket is. A concert ticket is a contract between you, an act, a promoter, and a venue that allows you admission to a specific event at a stated time and place. Seems simple enough, right? Let's continue. A concert ticket can cost money, and that money goes to covering costs and making a profit for those staging the concert. Or in some cases, a concert ticket can be free and is used mainly for tracking attendance. Fair enough. A concert ticket can be pre-printed on cardstock. It can be printed by a machine the moment you buy it. It can be a barcode or QR code on a piece of paper that you print out at home. It may have a little hologram thingy on it or some other sort of security device. That ticket may be tied to the credit card used to buy the ticket, or it may not. And when you go through the door, a person may take your ticket, tear your ticket, or just scan it. But maybe you don't have a physical ticket at all. You have an e-ticket, which has been living on your phone for months. You poke through a bunch of screens until you finally find it, holding up everybody in line behind you and thinking to yourself that you really should have called it up earlier. Okay, that's a concert ticket. But who are the people behind issuing and redeeming all these tickets? What entities determine how much we have to pay for a concert ticket? How come we have to buy so many tickets through Ticketmaster? And what about these service charges and dynamic pricing and scalpers who somehow get their hands on tickets the second, if not before, the tickets go on sale to the general public? Here is a bold statement. Everything you know about concert tickets is wrong. Let's go through it. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and yes, these are going to be an emotional couple of programs because few things get people more twisted into knots than the subject of buying a ticket to a concert. This is an industry I've been studying for a couple of years now, and I think, I think I'm beginning to get a handle on it. This is one of the most complex and opaque and frustrating consumer experiences in the world. But you knew that, right? There were so many misconceptions and misunderstandings and confusion around the process of trying to get into a show. Why? It should be so simple. But it's not. In fact, it never has been, ever. Managing who can get into an event has been a problem for centuries and centuries. The Greeks had issues, 
at the first ever major outdoor theater, which was built in 325 BCE into the hillside of the Acropolis in Athens. The place was called Theater of Dionysus and could hold up to 17,000 people on its semicircular rows. Not all Athenians could attend all shows, of course. You needed permission to get in, and that soon meant some kind of hard ticket. That ticket may have come with a price, too. Selling tickets was how the performer and the venue made money, and it also limited attendance to any given show. And chances are, if an event was sold out, there was some guy outside the theater offering to sell you one, at an inflated price, of course. And thus, both the ticketed event and the scalper was born. When the Romans opened their first outdoor theater in Pompeii in 80 BCE, it was circular. It was round. The word around in Latin is ampha. Ergo, we have the world's first amphitheater. And there was no doubt some guy outside every gig in a toga and sandals yelling, Who's got seats? We'll come back to those guys later. The first concerts as we know them today began in the 17th century at European universities. And as far as I've been able to source out, the first recorded public gig to charge admission to see a musician was for an English violinist named John Bannister in London in 1672. We're going to make a jump now because I want to talk about the first rock and roll concerts in the 1950s. The first major rock concert happened on Friday, March 21st, 1952 at the Cleveland Arena. But a dozen acts played something called the Moondog Coronation Ball. This was a production of local radio DJ Alan Freed. Tickets were a buck fifty in advance or one seventy-five at the door. Not cheap for the kids of Cleveland. That's between seventeen and twenty dollars today. And notice that there were no service charges. And it was a complete sellout. Actually, it was more than a complete sellout. Twenty thousand people in a building designed for ten thousand, and about six thousand kids were left outside screaming that they couldn't buy tickets at the door. That's because there weren't any. More tickets were printed than the arena could hold. And then there were counterfeit tickets. And then there were the guys who somehow managed to get their hands on tickets through the box office with the help of a couple of bribes to people working behind the counter. And those tickets got scalped. Not long after the gig began, the teenagers outside stormed the doors. The cops moved in and ordered the show shut down before it had a chance to finish. This was the very first rock concert. And already, ticketing was a disaster. As more promoters started staging more shows, things just kept getting worse when it came to equitably and ethically distributing tickets. Somebody had to have a better idea. Well, what about using computers? We'll get to that in just a bit. This topic gives me a chance to play some live tracks, like this one from Soundgarden. Black In those early pre-computer days, there were three ways to buy a concert ticket. Number one, you went to the box office of the venue and you bought pre-printed hard tickets that were stored at the box office in big racks. Number two, you could write a letter and send a check and get a voucher to be exchanged for tickets when you arrived at the venue on the night of the show. Number three, official external ticket agencies who sold tickets at locations other than the box office, usually taking a fee of a buck fifty or so for their troubles. The first person to come up with the idea of selling and keeping track of concert tickets with a computer seems to be Harvey Dubner, a hardware specialist at a New York computer company called Computer Applications Incorporated. 
They sold giant mainframe computers for hundreds of thousands of dollars, even millions of dollars for these things. After shooing away a number of people with the idea of using computers to sell tickets, Harvey had a change of heart and participated in the creation of the first computer-controlled communication service. It was called Ticket Reservation Systems, Inc., or TRS, and it was founded on May 4, 1965. The funding was provided by a Canadian, Edgar M. Bromfman, the head of Seagram's, the liquor company. As well as booze, Edgar loved the entertainment business. Originally, the goal was to handle the sales of tickets to Broadway shows from remote locations. In other words, you didn't have to go to the box office at the theater to buy tickets. Dubner and his partner, Jack Quinn, used a machine called the Control Data 1700. It had an operating system rewritten to handle tickets. It was connected to electronic box offices where people could go to buy their tickets. At first, they installed these terminals at a couple of banks and some travel agencies. Then came some supermarkets and department stores. The places where the equipment was installed got a commission based on how many tickets were sold through their terminals. Tickets were sold to theater, sports, supper clubs, and even movies. Easy peasy, right? Well, no. Establishments with terminals didn't see this as much of a way to generate revenue for their place of business. Instead, selling tickets was more about attracting people to that place of business. The terminals were, more often than not, put in the most remote part of the store so people would have to walk all the way through the entire place and then maybe buy something on their way in or out. And places with terminals didn't want to sell tickets to rock concerts because they had a very dim view of the kind of people who bought such things and frankly didn't want them in their places of business. Buying rock concert tickets remotely would have to wait. For those fans, they still had to line up outside a box office in hopes of getting tickets to a gig. TRS did reasonably well, although there were software glitches, printers that wouldn't print, and struggles with handling the inventory of tickets in the system. But it was early days. But what that company promised was pretty radical. A quote from a newspaper article from 1968. Pre-printed tickets are a thing of the past. Seat inventories exist only in the memory banks of our computers. A West Coast musical enthusiast can buy tickets for the Broadway show he plans to see on his next trip with as much ease as a native New Yorker. Oh, and, and TRS did have service charges. This is where the company made its money and paid for all its costs. It was 25 cents per ticket, although half of it was kicked back to the venue. Sounds familiar. TRS wasn't the only company trying to revolutionize ticket selling. There was also Teleticket, which soon changed its name to CompuTicket. It was powered by a couple of giant IBM 36050 mainframes. CompuTicket also had service charges, 35 cents in Los Angeles and 50 cents in New York. TRS and CompuTicket became really bitter rivals, fighting for clients like theaters and arenas, retail locations, and grocery stores. But in the end, CompuTicket didn't last, and by the spring of 1970, it was dead. TRS, meanwhile, bought the name Ticketron from another company that crashed and burned trying to use computers to sell tickets. And in July 1969, TRS officially became Ticketron. Meanwhile, rock concerts were becoming bigger and bigger and bigger business. Check out this commercial from 1968. The experience of your life happens tonight at the Hollywood Bowl. What's your name? In New York, in London, in Paris, and San Francisco, minds have been blown by the power and the glory of Jimi Hendrix. He's been called the world's greatest rock guitarist. They've been called the most together group ever. 
the Jimi Hendrix Experience. Tickets available everywhere for Cage Day's climactic summer concert. The Soft Machine, the Arab-Parent Special Added Attraction Vanilla Fudge, and starring the Jimi Hendrix Experience. Let them transplant your ears, lift your lid, and ignite your id. Tonight at the Hollywood Bowl. Hang on, I got more of those. Ticketron would become a major, major player in the ticket selling game. We'll get back to that in a second. While computerized tickets was starting to make inroads, most rock fans got tickets the old-fashioned way. They lined up at a box office, sometimes for days, if it was a hot show, to buy hard pre-printed tickets. And you might say, great, this is the way for hardcore fans to get the best tickets. But let's deconstruct that. First of all, how many people can afford to take time to line up at a box office for hours or days at a time? What if you're in a wheelchair? What if you're willing to travel from out of town to see the show, but you can't get there to line up to get tickets in the first place? And because we were dealing with pre-printed tickets and multiple box office outlets, which location had the best seats? No one knew how the inventory was distributed. Chances are, when you got to the front of the line, you got whatever tickets were available. And who were all those shifty people standing in line who bought the maximum number of tickets? They didn't look like you. They didn't look like rock fans. Well, they were hired by scalpers to scoop up as many tickets as they could. I remember standing in line once, and a guy who had line holders in front of me offered me tickets at an inflated price before I even had a chance to get to the counter. The term for those placeholder people were diggers. These problems are as old as ticketing itself. Charles Dickens encountered this exact same thing on a book tour of America in 1868. 120 years ago, people were complaining about being shut out of a Broadway show or a circus because all the tickets at the box office were gone. But there was a guy right there on the sidewalk with plenty of tickets for an extra cost, of course. Box office managers were routinely bribed by scalpers to give them early access to the best printed tickets. The payoff to the box office manager was called ICE. And in the early 1960s, it was estimated that in New York City alone, the amount of ICE paid for Broadway shows was more than $10 million a year. Lining up for physical tickets was awful and flawed and open to all kinds of corruption. It was not the good old days. The answer, again, seemed to point towards computerizing everything. Here's another old-timey concert commercial. Whoever the guy voicing this spot did millions of them. This comes from 1988. And now, a little more live music.
For a while, Ticketron was the leading computerized ticket selling outlet. But they weren't the only company selling tickets using computers. There was, for example, Select-A-Seat, which debuted in September 1972 with Arizona State University's football team as its first client. The architect behind this software was Dorothy McLaughlin. She wrote the code in BASIC, which is, uh, well, the most basic of all coding methods. BASIC stands for Beginner's All-Purpose Symbolic Instruction Code. She created Select-A-Seat with no formal training. She learned on the job so well that she was able to write the code two years after she started with absolutely nothing. The guts of Select-A-Seed could do what Ticketron and CompuTicket couldn't do, effectively manage a database of tickets for both single buyers and season ticket holders and all the complications that go with those customers. And it also created a database with names, addresses, purchasing history, and more. And unlike Ticketron, a Select-A-Seed terminal had a screen where the operator got a graphic representation of rows of seats and which ones were available. This was a big improvement over the paper maps that had been used to identify tickets at other box offices. But Select-A-Seat didn't aspire to be national, at least not at first. Their focus was on local clients, sports teams and venues, and had limited geographic reach. And they were able to keep costs low, too. At first, it was just 15 cents a ticket for a service charge. Oh, and here's a fun fact. The ticketing for the 1976 Montreal Olympics was handled by Select-A-Seat. The company proved that it could do what it said it could do and started licensing its software to other sellers in other markets. One such company to do this was called Seats, and Seats stood for Southeastern Advanced Ticketing Service. This helped computerized ticketing spread across almost a dozen major American cities. It looked pretty good until Select-A-Seat was hacked and its code stolen. This was the foundation of a new company called Bass, which in the beginning stood for Bay Area Seating Service. At the center of this company was Jerry Seltzer, the guy who made roller derby a thing for a while back in the 1970s. He owned the entire league, which featured teams touring across the entire U.S. Managing tickets for these tours was a nightmare, and Jerry needed help. His answer was computerized ticketing. New code was written in less than six weeks, and the company was up and running. Jerry's advantage was that he was the head of the roller derby league, which made him a promoter. He knew about selling tickets. Instead of dictating things from the computer side, he was able to show his coders what he needed from the side of the ticket buyer. It was a very successful approach, and even though there was a lawsuit over the stolen code, Bass continued to operate, picking up clients across the continent. So here we are in the middle 1970s. Concert tickets are being sold in several ways. Number one, same old, same old way with hard tickets at a box office. Number two, scalpers and ticket brokers. Number three, sometimes you could call the ticket seller, give them your credit card number, and then pick up tickets at the box office. And number four, computerized terminals via Ticketron, Select-A-Seat, and Bass. More in just a bit. Let's try this. More on the weird history of concert tickets in just a sec. Before we go any further, here is another old-school concert commercial. Come with me back to 1982. Incredible years with Black Sabbath serve only as a foreshadowing of the savage raw power dying to be released. The wild-eyed maniac is back and he's coming straight for your soul. 
1982 World Tour is yours. Take it. Z92 celebrates Ozzy Osbourne in the flesh. This Tuesday at the Auditorium, an awesome barrage of sound and light will rip through you in a rage of heavy metal fury. Enter the world of a madman, Ozzy Osbourne. Special guest starfighters. Get your tickets at the Auditorium Box Office or Brandeis Stores, the Bijou, Dirt Jeep in Lincoln, and Uncle John's in Sioux City. Ozzy Osbourne. By the way, the face value of that Aussie ticket was $9. Again, 1982. One of the most powerful promoters of the late 60s, 70s, and 80s was Bill Graham. His company, Bill Graham Presents, started with the hippie bands of San Francisco in medium-sized venues like the Fillmore and the Winterland. Graham had a neat trick with general admission tickets. He'd stand at the door taking tickets himself, but he wouldn't tear them. Instead, they would go whole into a basket. And when the basket was full, he would take them down to the box office and sell those untorn tickets again. When rock became big business in the 1970s, Graham knew he had to become big too. The fan base for this music had exploded. FM radio was awash with new rock music and listenership was growing. Talent agents started to realize there was something to this rock thing and started building up rosters of talent. More and more promoters wanted a piece of this action. Tours got bigger and more and more ambitious and booked into larger venues. This, of course, created new challenges with selling tickets to these shows. Should it be general admission or seated? Or both? A theater? Arena? Stadium? Where is this going to be? Hard tickets were a nightmare. How many were there at any given time? At which ticket outlets were they available? If things sell out at one location, how do you know to move inventory from another outlet to that one? How do you collect all the unsold tickets leading up to showtime to make sure that they're available at the box office at the venue? And most importantly, how do you accurately settle up with the gate receipts at the end of the night? The band's going to want to get paid. How much do you pay them? These were things that weighed heavily on both Bill Graham and roller derby king Jerry Seltzer, which is why Bill became a client of Bass, which by this point had a service charge of 50 cents per ticket. That may seem small now, but when the face value of the ticket was $6, yeah, concerts used to be that cheap, 50 cents represents about 8% added on to the cost of the ticket. And many people were not happy about this. They would scream, rip off. Not kidding. Sounds familiar. Bass officially started operations in December 1974. Their outlets were very music-focused and were installed in record stores and stereo shops. Sears stores were a client at first, but they hated the people rock concert sales brought in, so they dumped Bass. Things were settled on 24 terminals, all running on telephone lines using a 1200 baud modem. Not the quickest. Graham, as far as we know, was also the first to try a new policy of numbered wristbands. The first experiment was with the Bruce Springsteen show, and it worked like this. You went to the box office and you got a wristband. A random number was drawn, and that person would be first in line with everyone else lining up behind in sequential order. The reason a lot of people don't go to shows is because they don't know the shows existed in the first place. So it was very important to get the word out on these concerts and these tours. By advertising very, very heavily on local AM and FM radio stations, you attracted more people to the shows. 
Here's another vintage concert commercial. This comes from 1985. Again, 1985, face value of the ticket, $14. Time for another bit of live music, too. How about this from Linkin Park? By the late 70s, more companies were trying to get into the concert ticket racket. Remember photomats? They were those tiny kiosks found in parking lots where you drop off your camera film to be developed without having to get out of your car. Photomat thought it had the infrastructure for selling concert tickets at their 4,000 kiosks. To cover their costs, it would levy a service charge of $1 per ticket. Photomat also insisted that they have access to all inventory for any given show. That's important. We will revisit that. But the Photomat plan never really got off the ground and shut down in 1979. Meanwhile, Bass Worldwide, an attempt to reach beyond the company's regional markets to places like Toronto and Vancouver, collapsed in 1979. And by the way, for that international version of the company, Bass stood for Best Available Seating Service. Interesting thing about them. You could elect to pay an annual membership where you had first dibs on the same seats for every show. You still had to pay for the tickets, but at least you knew where you were going to sit. If you stuck it out year after year, you'd move up in the ranks with the opportunity to have dibs on better and better seats. It was a neat idea, but it went down with the company. Select a seat had also run into hard times, largely because it had capped its service charge at 25 cents per ticket. That wasn't nearly enough to keep up with all the new computer hardware they had to buy and all the code they needed to write. A bunch of programmers and computer salesmen had been watching Selectaseed and thought that they could do better. They formed a company called Computer Ticket Service, but co-founder Albert Leffler didn't like that name. Had to be something a little bit more catchy than Computer Ticket Service. It was his wife who came to the rescue. She remembered a dry cleaner in El Paso, Texas named Master Cleaners. So she said to her husband, well, how about calling the company Master Tickets? No, said Albert. Let's flip that. Ticket Master. And so the new company was founded in Phoenix in 1976. And for the record, the first ever Ticketmaster event was for the Electric Light Orchestra at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque on January 23, 1977. Tickets were $6.50 and the service charge was a quarter. At first, Ticketmaster also wrote ticketing software that it licensed to other vendors, but that had all stopped by 1982 when Fred Rosen became CEO. The company moved from Phoenix to Los Angeles and began signing contracts to be the exclusive seller of tickets in venues around Southern California. At the time, they were just another regional ticket seller. That would change. We'll come back to them, but it's time for another vintage radio commercial. And here's that guy again. This dates to 1985. 
Circus 38. This Wednesday night at Knoxville City Coliseum. A night like no other night. 38 special. Live. Of rock and roll. Back, back, back live. And South Concerts present 38 special. Special guest on Honeymoon Suite. Honeymoon Suite. And now, more live music. Back with more in the history of concert tickets in just a second. A big landmark in the history of concert tickets happened in early 1983 when Ticketmaster managed to land a massive account. It became the sole seller of tickets for the second US Festival, a giant event in San Bernardino, California, underwritten by Steve Wozniak of Apple Computers. Ticketmaster scooped the contract right out from under Ticketron's nose. But back then, there were no Ticketmaster terminals. They didn't have any of those yet, so it was all about selling hard tickets. There were box offices around the area. Plus, you could call a dedicated phone line with your credit card numbers. Whoever was on the other end of that phone line would go into the Ticketmaster database and assign you a ticket. Ticketmaster pulled it off, helping to sell somewhere around 670,000 tickets. And the experience showed CEO Fred Rosen why computerized ticketing was the future. Another big break came when the Hyatt Hotel chain, run by the Pritzker family, got a contract to run the Superdome in New Orleans. They needed a ticket seller that was uncorrupted by the usual way of doing business in New Orleans. They talked to Ticketmaster, and they liked the company enough to invest in it. At the same time, Ticketron, the biggest computerized seller of tickets, had run into problems. Even though it was selling tens of millions of tickets and nearly a thousand terminals had been set up in the U.S., Canada, and Europe, it just couldn't get it right when it came to dealing with clients, even with about 40% of the market. The company just couldn't handle the volume of requests on its machines. Instead of 15 seconds to process a ticket request, which would be an eternity today, it might take up to five minutes on a bad day. That's how hard their computers were being slammed. It got so bad that for big shows, you know, Rolling Stone, Led Zeppelin, two examples, the Ticketron had to become a seller of hard tickets, just like the old days. And this brought everybody back to those, like I said, bad old days of standing in line and dealing with scalpers and not knowing which outlet had the best tickets. Another problem was the Ticketron never got all the tickets for a given show. They would do well to be allocated 50%. Fans eventually figured that out and opted not to use Ticketron in their quest to get the best seats in the house. Revenue suffered as they went to the box office of the venue. Hardware costs and training of staff to use the equipment, something that could take up to two months, also hurt. Ticketron also had this idea that they could sell lottery tickets through their terminals. They had the idea of bidding on horses through their terminals. By 1990, Ticketron was such a mess that they had no choice but to sell. And the buyer was the Carlyle Group, a private equity firm founded in Washington, D.C. They held on to Ticketron's assets for about a year, and then they flipped it. 
Who did they flip it to? Ticketmaster. And with the acquisition of Ticketron, Ticketmaster became the undisputed market leader when it came to computerized concert ticket selling. Time for another classic rock radio commercial. And here's that guy one more time. This is from 1991. Two great bands, one low price. Together, bad company. With damn Yankees. February 27th at the Dyke Arena. More show, less dough. With bad company. And damn Yankees. Ticket prices are only $12.95. Available now at the Deck Box Office and usual Ticketmaster outlets. And here's one more live recording to go along with our theme. Foo Fighters, live in Melbourne, Australia, in 2000. As you can see, the history of selling concert tickets is awfully convoluted and prone to corruption and misuse. We are going to need a part two for this program because we need to talk about the rise of Ticketmaster, the changes in the concert promotion industry, the internet, computer technology, service charges, instant sellouts, ticket resellers, and more. And by the time we're done, it's my hope that you will have a better idea of why the seemingly simple act of buying a concert ticket is so damn complicated and why the subject is so incredibly emotional. There are hundreds of ongoing history podcasts available through any platform you care to use. Download as many as you want, I don't mind. And if you can, rate and review. We can meet up through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and even TikTok. And you've got an open invitation to visit my website for music news and information. It's updated every day at ajournalofmusicalthings.com. Plus, if you have any comments, questions, criticisms, or complaints, use alan at alancross.ca. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. See you part two for the weird history of concert tickets. Next time, I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 